Hey there, safety enthusiasts. This is Tim Ludwig from safetydoc.com. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Insights into Your Safety Culture podcast, which is simulcast as a blog on safetydoc.com. Join us on safety-doc.com for 30 years of research, stories, videos, books, and blogs, all to get your safety culture fix. Now let's get to it. A line for the front line. You know, the union steward was kind of bragging. He had just recounted an incident where a supervisor asked one of his workers to step in some standing water to work on some corroded gauges uh, near a coker in a refinery. The work needed to be done immediately because it would delay ongoing maintenance in the fractionator uh, and it wouldn't allow it to take on any different stock feed. So the worker saw that the water would be a hazard to his work and then requested a pump be used to displace the water before he began the task. The supervisor, aware that the work was behind schedule, instructed the worker to engage in the task immediately under no uncertain terms. Well, the worker complained to the nearby union steward, who had then had what what he described a very direct conversation with the supervisor, imploring him to have the pump retrieved. In what turned out to be a very public argument, the union steward reminded the supervisor that he can go and has gone all the way to the top leadership at the refinery reporting incidents like this where supervisors required one of their workers to take a risk. When this happens, he warned, the supervisor has hell to pay. So the supervisor relented and ordered the worker to go retrieve the pump while he made a call to his managers telling them that the timeline would have to be pushed back even further. A call he didn't want to make. So it was the same union steward that was telling the story to a workshop of fellow employees that I was leading at the time. He had kind of a masked pride and and a sort of cynicism making the point that supervisors and managers were the source of all ills. He said, we can do all the behavioral observations we want, have all the meetings we want, but the supervisors will still tell us to take risks. That's something that will never show up in our behavioral cards. This guy was just lucky I was around that day, he said with masked pride. Then he sat back and seemed to enjoy the bit of rile he caused when others in the group at the workshop started counting their own supervision stories and and their own exacerbation. And It was a dysfunctional practice workers too often engage in, the frontline supervisor bashing. It felt good as a catharsis, and it was reinforced by others jumping in on the bandwagon. And I bet it happens again and again in your safety committees. You know, what was ironic here is that I just got done teaching them the behavioral principle that we don't blame the worker for errors. Instead, we look to understand the situation, the environmental contingencies, these situations that put the worker in the position to take the risk. A couple of folks in the workshop, and for them, it was an opportunity to declare their well-practiced accounts of supervisor malfeasance. The irony was that they themselves were blaming the worker as well. In this case, the worker just happened to be on salary. 
So to redirect everyone away from the emotional dis dysfunction that too often sucks all the wind out of our employee committee meetings, I reiterated what I just taught them. I said, by the time workers find themselves in a position to take risks, we've already lost. Because there's a whole host of behaviors done by a whole host of other people, unaware that they had participated in perfectly creating the conditions for the workers to take risks. If we blame the workers, we just stop there in our understanding of the incident. However, if we see the risks that we, that we observe the workers taking as an opportunity to learn, then we may just discover the interlocking behaviors from others that need to be addressed as well. The worker supervisors in this last example, instructing him to work in the standing water or else is a good example of an interlocking behavior. The supervisor's behavior was setting the occasion for the worker's behavior. The antecedents, the instructions, go do this in the standing water, and the consequences, or else, is a good example of how the supervisor was delivering the behavioral contingencies for the worker to work under. This is Tim breaking into this podcast to tell you about my book, Dysfunctional Practices That Kill Your Safety Culture. A manager finds himself on top of a stepladder. A woman removes the guard to her machine. A worker is not wearing her safety glasses in the plant. A rustabout uses the wrong size clamp instead of retrieving the right tool. A supervisor teaches a new worker to take a shortcut. A mechanic climbs on top of an active machine to find the oil leak. Why, why do these folks do these things? Is it because they're stupid? We'll find out. Read or listen to the first chapter of Dysfunctional Practices on safetydoc.com. Dysfunctional Practices, available now on Amazon and Lulu.com. And now, back to our podcast. The scientific area called Behavior Systems Analysis is an emerging area of our science that I've been writing a lot about in my boring, pompous, and convoluted scholarly work. If you can't get to sleep at night, I recommend you read one of those uh, articles from journals. In behavioral systems analysis, we seek to understand the systems that are influential on local behavior. These system factors are proximal, otherwise near, to the worker. This would be like their supervision, the tools and equipment, the task steps that are involved in doing the work. But system factors also include the more distal, which we mean by further away in time and space. These distal factors include workflow processes, procurement engagements, engineering considerations, and ultimately leadership and even customer behaviors. All of these system factors, proximal and distal, are influential on the behaviors we see when workers are taking risks. I've been designing and testing analysis techniques that consider these factors in incident investigations and behavioral ABC analyses. And, and one thing that I have learned, the most critical, is that there are a whole host of behaviors done by many other people 
most of whom who are unaware that they have perfectly created the conditions for the worker to take the risk. Yes, the supervisor's behavior sets the occasions for the worker's behavior. But let's ask, what sets the occasion for the supervisor's behavior? I mean, let's take the example we were just talking about. You know, what behaviors by who let the gauges corrode even though they were supposed to be inspected during preventive maintenance? What behaviors and by who let the pumps on the far side of the plant instead of near the tool crib where they could be used to drain the water? What behaviors by who led to planning where multiple maintenance activities were dependent on each other during the same day? What behaviors by who led to delays that put the work behind schedule to begin with? I mean, where were the contractors responsible for water mitigation? And what behaviors in process engineering required the work to be done in the first place? What behaviors in accounting accounted for the cost of the delays? What leadership behaviors pushed the schedule for other leaders who behaved in other ways? Why did God let it rain so hard that morning? Complex? Yes. Critical? Absolutely. Every person in every organizational function that would include operations, HR, procurement, engineering, maintenance, process engineering, accounting, labor relations, security, distribution, receiving. Everyone, everyone needs to pinpoint their behaviors that directly or indirectly impact the behaviors of the frontline worker. Then we need to see how these types of at-risk behaviors throughout our system are being reinforced, then we can make the needed changes that will lead to sustained safety behaviors on the front line. All of the quality improvement flavors of the month, like Lean, Six Sigma, Kaizen, or whatever new version of this will be marketed in the future, speak of the Gemba, or the place where value is created. That place is the front line of operations, where the work is done, where the money is made. Every place else, as operation folks are fond to say, is overhead, where money is spent. Money is spent there so that the front line worker can help you make money. The more these functions are aligned, as W. Edwards Deming taught us, the more value can be created by the front line. Well, I'll see your value in money-making and raise you safety. The systems of behaviors interlocking across people working in different functions of your company must be aligned for the front line for the safe work to be done. You know, it occurred to me on that fateful, wet afternoon when the supervisor instructed the worker to take the risk of going in the, the knee-deep water. You know, that wasn't the only interlock to be concerned about. There was another very practiced interlock. When the union steward came in and argued with the supervisor, each attempting to influence each other's behavior. That argument, those threats, and the resulting hard feelings was a dysfunctional practice that happens over and over again between employees and management. It then occurred to me that, I'll say it again, a whole host of behaviors 
done by many other people, most of whom who are unaware, lined up perfectly to create the conditions for union stewards and supervisors to get in fights. A line for the front line, folks. It'll make all the difference. This podcast is a production of safetydoc.com and is copyrighted by Timothy Ludwig, Ph.D., all rights reserved. For those small doses of inspiration, visit safetydoc.com. If you would like Dr. Ludwig to speak at your corporate or society safety function, simply use the contact link on safetydoc.com. Thanks for listening.